Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring the stories that make the incredible world of tech and venture tick. Join me, Aris Shah, as I speak to the founders, investors, and ecosystem operators trying to make a dent in the future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I'm super excited to have with me Shia Chorov. Shia spent the first 10 years of her career in the Israeli Defense Force, working in military intelligence, including within the Elite Unit 8200, as well as participating in the Talpiot program, a program for recruits who have demonstrated outstanding leadership potential, as well as academic excellence in the sciences. Acknowledged in Forbes 2021 30 Under 30 list for European technologists, Shia has been immersed in her own startup, DeepChecks, as co-founder and CTO since 2019. DeepChecks is a platform which supports organizations in automatically detecting and preventing AI system failures. Shia, welcome to the podcast. It's absolutely amazing to have you with me here today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. So let's just jump straight in. We've discussed how the IDF helps with all sorts of skills that are really valuable in the startup world. You spent quite a lot more time than normal. You know, normally I would I would think that two to three years is what most sort of participants in the IDF go through. And you worked in the elite unit 8200, the office of the prime minister, as well as participating in the Talpiot program. I'd love to understand what you think it gave you that you wouldn't have found elsewhere. So one of the things that I think is very unique about working in the in the IDF is that in a really short amount of time, it's kind of a turbo on your experience gaining because you're really given quite a big amount of responsibility and the opportunity to, to have a large amount of impact at a very young age. So like when you're there, let's say uh, two, three years and you already have some uh, quite a lot of kind of hands-on knowledge and understanding of what's going around. You're already being promoted to, you know, manage things and take a bigger scale of uh, operations. And in general, it's quite a kind of massive organization working together um, towards several uh, common goals. So on one hand, you're part of a kind of elite force and a small team working on something and kind of like a startup mindset. And on the other hand, you're really part of something big, like an A200, you're part of uh, hundreds of people. So you've got a big force working towards a common goal in which you're giving lots of impact and responsibility and the opportunity to work on, I would say, the probably also most advanced tech out there. Because the in the IDF, you kind of have to be an early adopter or, or really advanced in the various, whether it's in cyber or in machine learning. And I think tackling these big challenges at a young age with a large group of people that were also handpicked for that job, which is which is a privilege that um, I would say the Israeli army has um, of all, you know, everyone getting recruited and kind of choosing and trying to find the best fit between people and the positions they're into. So all these things together really are things that I, I don't think I would be able to get at such a young age with an alternative career. Yeah, no, I think that's really a really essential part of, I think, being in the IDF seems to be like, you know, the camaraderie that you get from working with others. I think, as you say, you're, you're thrown into leadership positions at a very early age and you get to learn and build in a way that potentially, you know, in the outside world, you don't get that opportunity. Certainly if you're working in a large corporate, maybe you get that if you're working in a startup, but if you're in a startup at a very early age, you're also learning from people who are learning themselves. Whereas I think if you're in a structure like the IDF, you have all that wealth of experience around you. 
One of the things that you said there that I'd really like to just understand a tiny bit more about is, you know, you talked about the opportunity to be early adopters of some of the technology that you'd use within the IDF. Is that typically technology that is built within the IDF or is it external? I'd I'd just like to understand, I guess, you know, I I would assume that, you know, defense obviously has to be on the one hand exploratory in terms of making sure you are, you know, have the highest level of technology, but equally you have to be cautious around the sort of tech that you're using and obviously make sure that it does doesn't have, you know, the potential to be compromised. So is that something that happens within the IDF or is that something that comes from outside or via like trusted sources from the outside and then brought in? Yeah, I think it's a good point because I did want to emphasize maybe the the usage of uh, early adopter where I would say the classical usage is, okay, I, I hear about something interesting that can give me lots of value. I start using it and see see how it works for me, then I think in the in the idea if it's really it's really in the second sense of what you described of being it's maybe less a an early adopter, but more of a kind of having to be at the point at the start at the kind of uh don't have the word in English now. The cutting edge, I guess, yeah, is what yeah what we say. Yeah. Exactly. Cutting edge and experimenting with like how can we utilize these things for you know our needs in order to make things more efficient in order to, I don't know, to treat better with a wider scale. So it's it's really more the the things we actually develop rather than probably the tools that we use or adopt. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So, you know, I think we all certainly here in the UK and probably in the US, we have this sort of vision of, you know, slightly James Bond-esque or DARPA-esque kind of, you know, skunk work sitting there where everything is done in the highest sort of amidst a massive cloak of invisibility and you, you can't actually get access to these things. But it sounds like, certainly the IDF, it sounds like that a lot of this stuff was happening you know, overtly within the IDF. So it was a function of the collaboration as opposed to being something, you know, that was worked on in, in some dark corner somewhere, which I think I think is really important. I would say like one of the disadvantages is that usually something that you're working on, I'm not talking about like a technical issue, but probably I know, a bigger task that you're trying to solve and a challenging one is you'll search on Stack Overflow and basically you won't find anything because it's really not the same types of data, not the same types of challenges. But of course you do have quite a lot of internal knowledge. And uh, well, there's also something kind of cool uh, with the feeling that maybe I'm one of the only people in the world dealing with this type of challenge currently. And okay, I have to either break my head on it like, and uh, think hard and collaborate with internal knowledge and people within. So, but uh, yeah, not, not with a uh, invisibility cloak, just, just without uh, the external knowledge uh, out there. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, that's super interesting, right? So I guess you are left to solve the problems in a way that you have to do it from first principles. You can't rely on other people's work to inform in part or maybe in whole, you know, what you're working on. And and I just sort of, it just struck me with a little bit of a laugh that it'd be pretty insane to go on Stack Overflow and see some code that helps with, you know, 10 minute grocery delivery versus <laughs> versus working on a defense system. So yeah, I can, I can imagine that you can't find everything up on there. So look, moving on a little bit, like we love a co-founding journey here on the pod. How did you and your co-founder, Philip Tanner, meet and what drove you to kick off this journey together? I mean, like both of you have very deep technical backgrounds. So I'd really love to understand how you complement each other as co-founders. Sure. So first of all, we met in, in Talpiot. So meaning we've known each other since the age of 18 and done both our bachelor's degree and also later on uh, worked together when we continued to our master's degree. That was out of choice, not out, not, uh, not, not part of like, the official uh, army service. So 
yeah, I think we have like one of the things that brought us to to work together is that we've known each other and know how each other thinks and how we work together in a wide variety of uh, circumstances, whether it's after sleepless nights or when everything feels uh, that, I know, like uh, not really going out of control, but more like uh, uh, you have so much on your head and uh, so little time to do it. And also, yeah, so we really both on the, I would say, professional level and also on the personal level had a lot of and still have a, a lot of trust in each other. And I think that is really one of the critical keys of what you want in a startup founder, like in a co-founder, because the amount of difficult decisions you're going to go through together, the amount of times you're going to disagree, the, the amount of times you're going to have to just trust him, whether, you know, whether you agree with him or not, you're going to trust that he wants to do the the thing that's uh, correct for you and for your startup and, you know, same say and vice versa. So yeah, if, if I kind of summarize it all in one thing, then it would be the way we, we knew and trusted each other, which is also one of the things sometimes many people ask me about, like founding a startup and uh, how do you look for partners and what do you want to, and really sometimes say, to be honest, like if I would now start a journey with someone new, it's probably as challenging as finding a, a partner for life because you go through, obviously for, you know, in different circumstances, but you go through so many serious, important uh, and emotional stuff also together. So I think, uh, yeah, we had the privilege of being together through all these different uh, types of, of situations. And about our backgrounds, so yeah, I, I agree both of us do come with, with a very solid technological background, which I think is very helpful when working in the deep tech space that even, you know, also people that are more like on the business side uh, really do need that understanding because essentially those are the people that we talk to. Those are the clients. Those are our users. So I'd say in general, like the background, that is correct. I think um, both of us did both do a bit of a different journey throughout our army service. So I, while Philip did deal with tech, he was many times more, I would say, on, on the business side of tech, uh, for example, working on uh, operations research. So much of the challenge there is actually delivery, like uh, convincing the stakeholders and, you know, making sure that your conclusions and the projects that you're working on will will be treated as they should be and uh, advocating it towards the different uh, channels. And also in his operation in machine learning, he joined, uh, well, they were then quite a small team, which uh, grew to a very impressive and well-known team in machine learning. And I think many of their challenges at that time, obviously there were some technological challenges, but uh, a lot of thing was, how do I actually make this gain traction, um, make people trust, make people use? How do I bring, you know, um, different projects and relevant ones? And how do I uh, bring interest of the different uh, relevant users? So I'd say that also kind of his natural tendency and also the experience and positions he were he was in was more on the like uh, tech business side, I would say, as, as far as uh, you have something similar. And uh, also on the personal side, I think that we very much complement each other because while we understand each other great and understand each other's lines of thought, we're very different. So while I am kind of, I very quickly take things to a very practical area and like, okay, can this be done or not? And how? And what are the steps? And Philip is like more kind of the creative mind of, okay, wait, let's not talk about the practicalities now. Let's think like, where can this go and how can this go there? So I think this not really tension, but rather this like balance is, is very, very good in, in these areas.
Yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff that I think is really important there. So the first, and I think almost any co-founder or founder that I know that has a co-founder would probably agree with what you said. Like, you know, co-founding a business is much like a marriage. At the end of the day, you are going to go through a whole bunch of stuff together that is going to be a roller coaster ride of emotions. You're going to have to make decisions that are, you know, very tough. The startup is your baby, you're responsible for staff. You know, you've, you've got to look at things without the emotion but also understanding that emotion is what drove you potentially to found the business in the first place. And I think, you know, you use one one word there, which was trust, which I think is essential trust and transparency, right? If you're co-founding a business, you, you both need to be really comfortable, not only that you can trust the other person, but that you are both working in the same direction or want the same outcome. Some of the, some of the worst sort of collapses I've seen is when co-founders realize that actually they want two very, very different outcomes from the business, right? And like a very simple way of thinking about that is even, you know, whether you want to bootstrap versus take, you know, external funding, whether you want to take venture funding, all those things can have a massive impact. I was smiling whilst you're talking about operations research a little bit. My sister works in OR in for British Airways. And unlike in the army, she's deciding on whether it makes sense to serve certain cocktails in cabins. I'm I'm joking. I mean, it's certainly much more important than that. And, you know, so much of, of that work is, as you say, data-led and it's statistical analysis. And it's understanding at the front line, you know, what people are thinking and what the stakeholders want. And I think finally, and I think for me, this is the really key point is, you know, the way you described your approaches, both of your approaches to things. And the way I would think about it, you talked about it as creative versus practical. I would I would describe it as strategic versus tactical, right? So big vision and, but equally, the big vision is nothing if you don't know how to achieve those objectives and what are the steps that need to be taken. And I see a lot of myself in how you describe Philip in the sense that I'm someone who shies away from, you know, the very kind of nitty gritty tactical minute by minute decision making. I like focusing on the bigger picture and, and therefore I know that the, the right sort of person to sit, sit by my side as a co-founder would, would be someone who has that operational tactical head that gets, you know, those small things done that make the big things happen. So no, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And equally, you know, the fact that you got to kind of try before you buy with each other by having been through, you know, whether it was the IDF together or whether it was the bachelor's or the master's degree, you got to test out each other in a way that most people don't get that opportunity. I think, again, that's absolutely, you know, essential to getting into business with someone, right? Understanding how they tick. And as you said, whether it's on the business level or on the personal level, both of those things are massively important. So, I mean, talk us through a little bit about the rationale for founding Deep Checks, if you can. Like your aim is to ease the wider adoption of machine learning. I mean, how are you actually doing this and what do you hope that that will lead to ultimately? Sure. I'll start with uh, why are we doing this or why we feel that there's like, what is the need here? And in that, I think, I would say that today it's already kind of a quite commonly accepted that the challenges in machine learning aren't necessarily the specific algorithm, I mean, that is part of the challenge, but rather everything around it, starting from the pipeline and the infrastructure to actually making it you know, to the data and eventually to making sure that it does do what you expect it to do. Uh, you understand why it does or doesn't do it or when it doesn't do it and uh, make sure that that continues working like that over time. So I'll say that like initially in our last positions, both Philip and I in different places in the IDF we're working with quite a lot of machine learning models and already that was like uh, six, seven years ago. And 
we started facing those challenges of, okay, I have this really cool technology that has amazing benefits and works much better than other things for specific use cases, by the way, not for everything, as sometimes uh, believed. But for many use cases, it it really like achieves uh, much, much better performance. And then I have this problem of it doesn't necessarily actually work the way I think it is, or it, do- it will, or even if it does, but once in a while when something changes and I talking about trust, so I don't know what's going to happen and the ability of users that aren't yet familiar with the technology or that now you're trying to convince them to move to, you know, start trusting your algorithms, it faces problems. Because, okay, if that happened, then how can I know? And how can I really like change my processes and my workflow to start working with with these uh, new unknown technologies? So I think that's that's like, that was our starting point of understanding that there is a need and there is a gap between the amazing potential and the ability to actually fulfill the potential in an efficient manner. And in that area, one of the things that we felt is uh, probably one of the biggest pain points is when you already have everything in place and you have the infrastructure and you have the data and you have the models, but you can't necessarily trust them or verify that they're going to, to work as you hope they will over time. So that was, I would say, our starting point of if we'll be able to improve those aspects of, of monitoring, of understanding what's happening, why it's happening, and when it's not going to happen, this is obviously a key factor for wider adoption. And that's how we reach the area of, of validation and testing or continuous validation for machine learning models. Yeah, so I mean, again, you talked about trust. I guess it's trust and bias, right? So some of these models, I guess, uh, what you're sort of trying to, to do is to ensure that they're robust enough that you know, that they are truly delivering the outcomes that one would expect in the broader sense, rather than, you know, having the biases, you know, from a human perspective in terms of, you know, whoever's written the code that drives the algorithm, that drives the model that leads to the outcome. And I mean, do you think this will make the current adoption of machine learning better, i.e. better outcomes in what already exists? Or do you think it'll actually allow for more adoption of machine learning in, say, smaller businesses or or SMEs? And is there a certain type of, I guess, like client business that you're targeted at? Or is it just any any business that uses some form of AI or ML within their operations? So I think the distinction you're, you're making is indeed very relevant. I think we are targeting all of them in a bit of various manners. Because, well, first of all, like in order to be able to understand what's happening, you want the visibility, you know, to, to know what, what's happening. And to, I, th- I think, by the way, one thing that if I explain like in one sentence, what's the challenge in monitoring machine learning models is that when they're giving data that they don't know to predict properly for, whether it's because they haven't seen things like this before, or because I know it's uh, the data is stale, or because it's dirty, or whichever reason, the result will be that the machine learning model will output a number. And that number won't in any manner tell us that it's not like uh, confident about it. So let's say that that's like kind of summarizing up the, the problem and how, like, who do we want to help in tackling these problems? So it is, uh, I would say, maybe a bit of a different feature set. So we have the thing of, first of all, gaining the observability and the visibility generally of what's happening over that giving or understanding when things are changing, sometimes it's really simple stuff. It's you have a problem with the, like the data streaming in and it's not relevant anymore or your data supplier or your data source changed something but didn't inform you. So it can be things like that. And for the areas that you mentioned, I would say it's it's relevant for many use cases, but specifically in more uh, regulated industries or in places where there's different compliance in place, you also have some more specific needs of uh, 
having to be able to explain a specific prediction or having to make sure that, you know, the model doesn't have any inherent biases or doesn't have biases that you're not aware of. So so that is, a, I would say, a whole feature set, which I would say I put it under the bigger umbrella and uh, is really relevant for, you know, for the wider adoption in, the, in these places. So it kind of goes all around, all across. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, what you described right at the beginning there is that kind of whole, the standard problem, I guess, with anyone using data, it's the garbage in, garbage out principle, right? Like, I mean, if the data coming in in the first place is either inadequate or improperly structured, then, you know, your model's not going to be handled, able to handle it. And, and again, if your model has not come across that sort of data before, you're always going to get an outcome, you know, th- that is less than ideal. So moving on a little bit to, you know, your kind of fundraising journey, you have raised over $5 million from various sources, including Grove and Hetz Ventures. I mean, what was the most important thing for them as investors when they were looking at deep checks? More importantly, why did you choose to partner with them as opposed to another firm? Sure. So I think, well, from their side, probably better to ask them, but, uh, but I'll, uh, say how I see it, I think that for like the first rounds of investment, seed investment and so on, probably the two things that I felt are most relevant and I can understand also why is probably three things. One thing is the market or in specific also the, not the specific nitty gritty of your solution because the details will change when your product meets meets the market, but what is the problem that you're you're coming to solve and uh, what is the market that it, it addresses? addresses so that's the first thing but that still doesn't have anything to do with us only with the idea we chose the two additional things that i think are kind of the main key points in their focus is the what is the founding team like both the founders and also what are the first team members that are going to join and the founder market fit which is something that i think personally i didn't hear that term before kind of starting to work on our idea and philip and i had lots of discussions of where do we want to take it? What do we feel like? What are we interested in? What do we have passion for? We had, again, lots of uh, thoughts and different ideas coming from our experience so far in uh, in our different positions. And one thing that I guess we naturally understood th- that as uh, first-time founders, we'll have many challenges in uh, founding a company and uh, starting to build a product and, you know, and going throughout all the journey. And uh, there's a big advantage in doing it in a field that you feel you're an, an expert in. So I guess um, that that's very relevant also also from the VC side. Yeah, mainly when you're kind of just starting the journey, they know that a lot of things are going to change, but the team won't change, the market won't change, and also the fit between them. So I guess that's that's what they go for. And from our side, I'd say that we did understand that we're going to start a mutual long journey. And when you go on a journey, then what's important for you is the people that are going to join you there. So I'd say that, in that aspect, we were very interested in what are their values as a VC and as personal people. And well, their values, values both like the on the value level and also the value that they that they bring or, you know, that they're how do they see their part in the journey? So we did find various types of and there are VCs that are more involved or that are less involved, VCs that believe that. So there's like really a wide variety. And I think those were the things that we focused on when uh doing, let's say, our side of the due diligence on the VCs. 
Yeah, so it <laughs> it still does not cease to surprise me how important the team element is both for investors as well as for founders, right? So exactly as you put it, there is, you know, there's a founder market fit question and what are you like as founders and can you go the distance and can you hire the people around you or bring the people in around you to make the business success? But more importantly, on your side, you were looking for the cap, you know, capital with values and capital with the ability to open doors, I guess, or, or assist beyond just the cash. And I think in the last sort of five, maybe even 10 years, that type of valuable capital, the kind of, you know, the trope on Twitter is, you know, how can I be helpful from a VC? But the reality is over the last five, 10 years, I think VCs are having to prove their value and how they can be helpful beyond the capital, because there is so much more choice, I think, out there as compared to what what there was, you know, again, as I say, five, 10 years ago. I think the other thing that is really interesting is that there are so many more kind of operator style VCs out there as well. So they bring a whole different set of skills to the table that again, in previous eras, maybe were less evident, right? Where you had more kind of finance-based venture capitalists as opposed to product operations-based venture capitals. But I think what I took from there is irrespective of which side of the table you're sat on, team is the constant, right? And people are the constant. So whether you're the investor or the founder, it's all about you know, who's sitting on the other side of that table and, you know, how you can work together and can you work together in the long in the long run. And I think it's really important for founders out there when they're thinking about, you know, who to take capital from to do that due diligence and really understand, you know, who am I potentially getting into bed with? What is the time frame at which they're looking to invest and, and potentially return the fund? And therefore, what does that mean for me and my business and where I need to go? So I think I think that's super, super interesting. Yeah, I'll add on just one sentence, obviously from a bit from a different standpoint, but it's a, a bit also like the considerations I talked about when searching for a co-founder or deciding to go on this mutual journey. So, of course, in the VCs, it's, it's in a different angle, but essentially, again, together, you are going to make critical decisions about your business, about, you know, about various points throughout your journey. So, so it's kind of you do want to be in the same mindset. You do want to, you know, the ability to take risks together and things like that. So. Yeah, so certainly. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I think the worst thing you could do as a founder is potentially, you know, you're an early, you're at the early stage of your business, but you take capital from, you know, a fund that is at the tail end of their deployment, which means that, you know, in the next three to four years, they're looking to harvest, you know, the returns from the businesses that they've invested in. And that just puts your, you know, puts a crunch on your, on your timetable and accelerates the milestones that you've got to reach in order to get there. So, I mean, all of this stuff I think is, is massively important. It's under, I think it is not incredibly well understood out there in in the ecosystem. And I think the way I always talk about it is, you know, venture capital is a business. You know, it would be great to think about it as being just this amazing source of capital that funds innovation all the time. And of course it does that, but it's a byproduct of the fact that it is capital looking for a return, right? So ultimately, in the same way that a founder has, you know, has to act as a fiduciary to its shareholders, right? So a founder has to act in the best interest of the shareholders in the same way VCs have to act in the best interest of the LPs and what LPs are looking for is a return on their investment on their capital. So yeah, I think massively important. So yeah, look, I mean, just as we kind of round things off, this pod is all about taking the entrepreneurial journey. It's how I've chosen to live my life. It's why I called this podcast Nothing Ventured. I'm always intrigued about how people look at entrepreneurship in different geographies. I mean, how does the Israeli ecosystem support entrepreneurs from your perspective? We've talked about the sort of ventures that get founded there in the past, you and I, you know, for example, there isn't the consumer economy to support, say, 
you know, the 10 minute grocery delivery businesses I talked about earlier. So what sort of sectors do you think thrive in Israel as well? Okay, so I think, I think there's actually two different topics here. So I'll start with the short one. The short one is types of sectors. I think Israel is very classic, classically known for a deep tech related ventures. Probably the most prominent reason being both the fact that there's quite a lot of uh, technology, whether starting from the, I, I guess, like the army is a big contributor to this, having a, a wide kind of big group of people getting, you know, at a young age already quite a lot of hands-on experience, specifically in, uh, traditionally it started quite a lot in cyber, but really not only because there's uh, various types of tech relevant. And again, once you have everyone going through the army, that's a big catalyzator. And uh, so I think, well, that's one of the reasons. Additional reasons are really, I would say, demographic because, well, small country, different language, no physical, you know, no, no ability to do like, a, I know, we can't have a physical POC of let's have a 10 minute uh, grocery delivery in all of the Middle East, probably will catch a bit, a bit less. And when you look at the more tech related stuff, which they're, first of all, like there, it's much not, not, I wouldn't say much easier, but rather maybe much more relevant to make them scale exponentially, even without the need to be limited physically to some, I don't know, I need to start building this operations and uh, infrastructure or to make sure that I operate in, you know, in the best market or the biggest market, which are usually US, also European market is also a, a good one. But but like here, we don't have that the possibility to do that for things that require more operational areas. Yeah, the the infrastructure. You're not building warehouses right, so, and and large sort of distribution centers or things like that. Yeah, right. So it's it still can be developed and done here, but it's just there's bigger hops to do and to overcome. And while in the tech area, I mean, you can do it from everywhere. And I'd say that COVID has proved that to us, uh, the world's becoming even more globally and the tech, like uh, it was already quite like that, but now even more, much more with the work from home. And suddenly, you know, you just upload something and it can, it can go viral. So you don't, doesn't really matter where you are, what you are. It, it matters how you do it and um, what is the value you bring. So I'd say the kind of, well, I said this would be the shorter part of the answer, but probably the combination of these two uh, makes Israel much more classic for that area. And about the ecosystem, I think it's a great privilege to to be an entrepreneur here because you really have a lot of people that want to help and that also can help because being quite a small country, well, like if you want to consult with someone, it's very, very likely that you can reach him or her within like two steps, which is crazy. You can get a warm intro to basically anyone you want by just finding who is the relevant person to intro, intro you to him or her. And I don't know, but I guess it's not exactly the same in the US. Like, okay, so maybe I have a friend and, and I, I start like trying to connect. So there are obviously maybe more people that I can talk to, but uh, here you can basically reach everyone. And also it's very, it is something that's like very, I know, around you. So it's like very accessible. It's not, it's not like so once I heard of someone, but it's really on um, the fact that it's accessible makes, and I'd say that the reason for that being just that the ratio of startups and entrepreneurs in relation to the, the size of population is quite big, which enables you really to to have lots of people from various areas to, to talk to. And I guess that combination is, uh, is great when you're starting your journey and well, not only also throughout your journey and seeking for people to consult with, because Obviously, that's one of the one of the most important things and one of the things that helps a lot throughout the journey. 
Yeah, I think that combination of approachability and accessibility that you described there clearly really important. And I was also thinking, you know, with Israel's sort of policy around Aliyah and, and the ability for, you know, the Jewish diaspora to return back to Israel or to return to Israel and set up a life there relatively easily means that you, you can have those influxes of younger people, younger talented people who are looking to build, who are looking to support, who are looking to kind of, you know, do more for the economy and the country as a whole. But I think it's really, I think you're, you're hundred percent right. I'm like, I think in the West we're reliant on Twitter, right? <laughs> like if I can reach someone via DM, then maybe that's the best way for me to get in touch with them. And, and that can be quite successful. But equally, you know, if there is someone that you want to talk to and you're able to get to them via someone you know in a couple of, you know, a couple of simple steps, which is always going to be more, you know, is going to be easier in a smaller geography or a smaller de- demography, that can be absolutely vital to a, certainly a startup, right? Because you have access to decision makers much easier than than maybe here in the UK and certainly in the US. So yeah, I mean, I, I could see that being a really, a really key kind of aspect of how, you know, how entrepreneurs operate out in Israel and, and how the ecosystem continue to grow. Because presumably there is a, a huge amount of goodwill towards those founders, right? And people looking to support them, not just being asked for that support. So Shir, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you today. For our listeners, where can they find you online? Are you on LinkedIn, are you on Twitter? Where's the best place for them to come looking for you? Yeah, probably LinkedIn is the quickest response or on Slack on the relevant communities as well. But uh, yeah, LinkedIn is, is great. I'm also on Twitter and uh, on Shir Cherev. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Shir. I really appreciate it. And yeah, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. Follow us on social and at nothingventured.tech to make sure you never miss another episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support us by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We love to hear from our listeners to understand the topics and guests that they'd like to hear about and from most. Drop us a message via the links in the show notes, and thanks again for your support. Listener.